Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Nora Erekat. With its roots in providing justification for European settler colonialism in the Americas, can international law ever serve the cause of liberatory movements? Is there a danger that in winning legal victories in forums such as the United Nations and the International Court of Justice, that radical causes such as the Palestine Liberation Movement can come to prioritise endorsement by prestigious multilateral bodies at the expense of other and potentially more effective strategies? And how strong are the respective cases of South Africa and Israel in their dispute at the ICJ? And what is the legal, political and moral significance of the case that South Africa has brought? Those are just some of the questions that Palestinian-American legal scholar and human rights attorney Nora Arakat addresses in today's episode. By the time that you hear today's interview, the ICJ may have made its ruling regarding the issuing of provisional measures in response to South Africa's contention that Israel has broken the Genocide Convention in its murderous assault on Gaza. But I hope you'll agree that the conversation remains highly relevant, regardless of what the court ultimately decides. If you find this episode interesting and useful, please do consider becoming a supporter of this show on Patreon. You can support the show from as little as £1 per month, and £5 patrons get access to episodes of PTO Extra, including the upcoming Listener's Questions episode with Cy Englert, who was recently on the show to talk about the history of settler colonialism. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. And now to today's interview. Nora Erika is an associate professor at Rutgers University, specialising in international studies, and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, and the co-editor of Aborted State, the UN Initiative, and New Palestinian Junctures. Her writing has appeared in The Nation, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, amongst many other venues. So before we go into the details of South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, I wanted to begin by asking you how you personally found the experience of watching South Africa's legal team make their case at the ICJ. Of course, short clips of the statements made by South Africa's lawyers have been widely shared on social media, but I'd imagine you would want to encourage those who haven't done so to watch South Africa's application to the court in its entirety, because there is this sort of cumulative effect, which is really quite devastating, both in terms of the strength of the case that South Africa is making, but also at an emotional or or effective level. So could you say something on how you found watching the proceedings and, and their significance beyond the strictly legal merits of South Africa's case? It's a great question, Alex. I actually um, shared publicly after watching them how moved I was um, on on for for personal, political, professional reasons. I went to law school. My decision to go to law school comes in the context of what's known as the Second Intifada. When I was a, a an undergraduate student who helped launch the first boycott, you know, divestment campaign against Israel even before the BNC launched the 2005 BDS call. And, you know, I'm so frustrated by the political hurdles that we find before us in order to stop Israel. You know, at this point, if you recall, during the Second Intifada, we see Israel very much shift from a policy of occupation of Palestinians to a policy of explicit warfare against the very population it has a duty and a responsibility to protect. So it shifts from using law enforcement 
um, policing powers to police and maintain order to then using outright military and lethal force to extrajudicially assassinate um, Palestinians, to use lethal force to shoot, to kill those um, who they are describing as constituting more than a riot, but not necessarily a war. And so they create this new category, armed conflict short of war, in order to be able to use force against Palestinians if the Palestinians have zero uh, legitimacy to use any force in response. I mean, obviously, I articulate this much later as a scholar, but at the time, I'm so vexed by these conditions, I think to myself, oh, I have to go to law school. If I go to law school, and, and then we can get around the politics and actually, you know, use legal argumentation and a, and a judicial tribunal in or, order to hold Israel to account, somehow we would advance the Palestinian cause well, with more efficacy. And there, you know, I learned my other greatest lesson, which is about the imbrication of law and politics, right? Literally, I go to law school for the purpose of, of suing Israeli war criminals and the accused. And in fact, graduate law school in 2005, when if you also recall the Intifada, the second Intifada is just coming to a close. At this moment, there's only two frameworks that Palestine is understood as. It's either as a peace and conflict resolution or as a national security issue, but not as a human rights issue, right? Not as a liberation struggle, certainly not in the United States. And so there are no jobs for me to work as a Palestinian human rights attorney. And I receive a grant of some $35,000, imagine with a law school debt, to create my own job, to sue Israelis and work with two legal teams to sue two Israelis in 2005 and the cases are dismissed in 2006. This big, big, long story to tell you that this is, you know, the risen detch of my academic and, and professional pursuit. And in frustration of its inefficacy, I go back to school and now study it only to find in 2023 the ability to watch in real time a South African team with its moral authority of overcoming apartheid, which literally is facing off with the very Israeli regime that sustained apartheid in the moment of boycott, and which made, you know, enabled apartheid South Africa to become nuclear capable, and facing off with the United States, which protected apartheid South Africa at the Security Council, to now bring this case on behalf of Palestinians. And not only to do that, you know, symbolically, but the legal argumentation was brilliant. It was airtight. They anticipated all of Israel's possible defenses and argumentation and, and, and responded to them. They were diligent in tying the facts that they were finding to ICJ jurisprudence on genocide in order to make, you know, what, what, what does rise to, you know, a provisional measure, what does rise to establishing, you know, a dispute, especially for those who are, you know, understand that connection. It was just so satisfying how airtight it was. And then as a Palestinian, I'm an editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies. And so I care very much about the Palestinian intellectual tradition. It was so satisfying to watch the South African team lift up the Palestinian tradition. They did not aim to speak on the behalf of Palestinians, but to speak with them. When they acknowledge an ongoing Nakba 
when they acknowledge that there is a context of 75 years of settler colonization, when they acknowledge that prolonged occupation is a violation of a preemptory norm that usurps the right of self-determination, when they acknowledge that there is a 17-year siege, right, that contravenes Israel's rights. It does not have even the right to impose siege, which would be an invocation of, you know, an Article 51, use ad bellum argument, we can get into that, whatever. But it was so very satisfying. So on all registers, watching the ICJ proceedings was incredibly overwhelming. You know, briefly, very, very briefly, very briefly for three hours in a nightmare that has now spanned 105 days, it felt triumphant. It felt like that just very, very briefly, um, knowing full well, I mean, what's happening now is is devastating. It's getting worse. I think Israel, as it acknowledges that it's not going to have the green light to continue, even, you know, today, a Swiss legal team has um, served, filed a criminal complaint against Isaac Herzog, Israel's president, um, as he lands in Davos for the World Economic Forum. Um, it's indicating that, you know, as much as Israel desires to be a rogue state, it, it exists in an international environment and cannot do that. And I think also there's internal opposition within the U.S. establishment that wants Israel to end this, right? And doesn't want Israel to establish, you know, reestablish a settlement enterprise in the Gaza Strip. And so we, it, because of that internal conflict, because of the international pressure, we actually see Israeli violence worsening when we thought it couldn't get worse, worsening when starvation now in disease is now promising to kill more Palestinians than the 24,000 that have been killed. So yeah, this ICJ decision, and I think that that's okay. I think that every it's okay for everybody that continues to fight to draw inspiration from where we can and to do that, you know, with a tremendous amount of skepticism, but without guilt. We need to continue, and we need to have the endurance to continue. As you say, the case that South Africa made seems extremely persuasive, but I imagine, like me, you've seen plenty of people on social media on the left who are sympathetic to Gaza's plight, but are very pessimistic about the chances of South Africa winning the case, because to do so would seem to fly in the face of the established world and legal order, which is largely operated in the interests of the United States and US allies, including Israel. And it's also argued that tremendous pressure will be brought to bear on the court by the United States and many European countries, uh, including the United Kingdom, where I am, in order to impel the court not to rule against Israel. How optimistic are you that South Africa can can win the case? And, and do you think that that kind of pessimism is warranted? Absolutely, that pessimism is warranted. These international tribunals, for all of the promise that they have and all of the exceptions that we may have seen, specifically, you know, the ICJ has issued rulings against the United States and its intervention in Nicaragua, has issued rulings against the UK and its um, role in the Chagos. But there are exceptions and we can draw inspiration from that. But we should not forget that these international tribunals are imbricated, you know, in, in, in a European supremacist international legal order. And so we should have a tremendous amount of skepticism, if not pessimism. But I, here's how I think we should balance that out on multiple registers. Number one, 
The ICJ is more independent than the ICC as a judicial organ of the General Assembly and the fact that all member states of the UN are members of the ICJ, unlike the ICC, which has a chance of imploding or being, you know, defunded and dismantled, the ICJ is not going anywhere, right? So it has more, it's it's more insulated politically than is the International Criminal Court. You know, and we can talk more about why the International Criminal Court is so politicized, looking at the text of the Rome Statute, looking at its own jurisprudence. But let me move on and say that number two, there are going to be, in terms of jurisprudence, two levels of review. At this initial level of review, all the South African team has asked for is provisional measures or somewhat of an injunction, right? It's a, it's it's just it's an injunction until the court can review more thoroughly the accusation against Israel to come to a more formal legal finding. Which might be years hence, right? Right. That might take six or so years, if not more. But this will only take two to four weeks because it's an emergency injunction. That's you know, And that's why one of the provisional measures is literally asking Israel not to tamper with evidence, right, amongst the nine provisional measures that are, that are sought. One of them is just to preserve evidence, which obviously Israel is not doing in this particular moment by blowing up universities and disappearing people. But suffice it to say, this level of review is is less. It's a plausibility standard. And based on what the South African team presented, I think it's very plausible, if not obvious, if I dare say, which no lawyer would ever say, it's plausible that Israel is committing genocide and at the very least has failed to prevent genocide. And that is actually indisputable. Even from Israel's apologists, Israel has not, has, has not punished anybody in Israeli society or government um, at all for their incitement to genocide of Palestinians. And so the plausibility piece, I think we, we can be optimistic. And what happens at the later stage, I think we can be rightly so quite pessimistic. Now, why, why is this relevant? If we think about law's relationship to politics, the law on its own is doing nothing. Okay, the ICC already has an arrest warrant out for Putin that hasn't stopped, you know, Russia's invasion and war making of the Ukraine. The ICJ also has a provisional measure against um, Putin. And again, that, that hasn't stopped anything that Russia has done. So think again that the law in and of itself isn't a magical wand. Right. There's no international police force. The court has no coercive authority. What it does have is the ability for us as the masses of people who even made possible, frankly, um, the ability for South Africa to bring its case is it it builds on the work that millions of people have been doing internationally to isolate Israel and the United States, which needs to be done to make them out now if they, you know, if they continue holding on, you know, to their talking points and their insistence on finishing or flattening Gaza, that they are increasingly seen as a danger to the rest of the world and being isolated politically, which they've already done full well in the U.S.'s invocation of um, veto power to undermine now two ceasefires, as well as the exceptional invocation of Article 99 by the Secretary General and Uniting for Peace by the General Assembly. 
It also gives people power and more states power. We know that eight heads of state and 11 foreign ministries have explicitly described what's happening as genocide. It gives them more authority to also continue to agitate and to open their national courts to prosecution of Israeli accused um, at all levels in universal jurisdiction cases and allows them to, you know, the third piece is basically to, to put other countries at notice that at this point, even without a definitive ruling by the ICJ, the plausibility of genocide makes it incumbent on those states not to aid and abet Israel through the provision of intelligence, financial, diplomatic, and military aid. And so this case actually will do a lot, even if it doesn't do what people normally expect uh, a judicial ruling to do. And I think that we need to continue to, you know, to take law on the international stage with a grain of salt and skepticism and to deploy it strategically on our behalf. If we turn for a moment to the Israelis' response to South Africa's case. So in an article for The Guardian, Kenneth Roth, the former executive director of Human Rights Watch, argued that South Africa does indeed have a very strong case overall, and he dismissed many of Israel's arguments as essentially irrelevant to the charge of breaching the Genocide Convention. But he also suggested that Israel's case may be seen as more persuasive by the court when it comes to the allegation that Hamas embeds itself in civilian population centres. And he also pointed to Israel's argument to the effect that it would be unfair for the ICJ to order Israel to cease its operations in Gaza, while Hamas, which is not and cannot be as a non-state actor party to the court's proceedings, would be under no such order to cease uh, its own operations, such as rocket attacks, for example. Do you also see those arguments as the ones that, even if one might disagree with them, are more likely to be persuasive to the court than, say, the self-defense argument? I'm not sure what the court is going to find persuasive or not. Based on, you know, based on the ICJ jurisprudence, one, the Hamas argument about not, you know, now holding hostages and captives does make it unique. Um, but that the idea that there were armed conflicts and that there there are other extenuating factors, I think that the jurisprudence has been clear, at least at the plausibility standard. I think it's important, though, to address those arguments themselves which I don't find compelling. Let's just take the first argument about um, that Hamas is embedding itself in urban warfare, and that's what gives rise to this. So number one, consider that Israel has used that as a talking point of human shielding without evidence systematically, systematically, since two, you know, well before 2006, but that's when I started you know, looking at it closely. Um, and it's 2006 invasion of Lebanon, in its um, attack on the Palestinian population in Gaza in 2008, 9, in 2012, in 2014, in 2018, in 2021, and now in 2023 into 2024, Israel has basically advanced a talking point that it has failed to prevent any evidence for. In fact, in the Commission of Inquiry following the 2014 operation, the UN did its own investigation of the targeting of UN schools. Israel has targeted UN facilities, which are clearly demarcated as immune, are civilian objectives and immune from targeting. The UN has provided Israel with the very coordinates in order to protect the civilians sheltering therein, and Israel has struck them anyway. There were only two exceptions 
where the UN investigation found that Israel had any reason to attack it. In both of those cases, the facilities where Hamas had weapons, they were empty. There were no civilians in them. And that was it in a legacy. So one, I, I would just urge, I would just urge that talking points be treated as talking points until there is evidence that is marshaled to support them. And now I think the reason people make this argument is because, and this gets to the second point, which is to think about urban warfare. Guerrilla combat and urban warfare, this is a feature of it, right? That the guerrilla combatants aren't fighting in a neutral area. Well, you don't have Hamas combatants fighting in open fields as open targets. That would be an odd, an odd thing to ask of any, you know, guerrilla combatant. Yeah, it, it would be it would be to ask them to fight as no other insurgent forces ever fought ever, right? I mean, it's just, it's it makes no sense. It makes no logical sense. It's basically a demand that Palestinians not fight at all. Yeah, right. That's literally, or or that they they commit collective suicide. I think doesn't make any sense. But here's why that matters. Israel is insisting that its combat with Hamas is exceptional. And yet that could not be farther from the truth. The majority of wars since the Second World War have not between been conventional wars between two states, but have been wars between a state and non-state actors. It is precisely why the international community, led by the Third World that was fighting anti-colonial wars, right, decided in 1977 that the uh, Common Article 3 enshrined in the Geneva Convention was insufficient to regulate this irregular combat and thereafter, you know, legislate new bodies of law in 1977, the additional protocols 1 and 2 to regulate international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict, the latter that regulates civil war, the former that regulates warfare between nascent sovereigns and other powers. There's an entire body of law that anticipates dense urban combat, that anticipates these guerrilla tactics, and that has legislated how to fight. That is why there is an Article 57 on precautionary measures. It is not enough for Israel to drop leaflets to tell people that they are about to bomb to leave. When the civilian target, right, or when the civilian cost is anticipated to be greater than the military advantage to be achieved, even if there is a military purpose, then the belligerent state must cease and desist from that operation. This has already been anticipated, okay? So here we also have Israel trying to make an exceptional argument when this is actually a feature of most wars since the Second World War for which bodies of law exist to regulate for that purpose. You know, I think it's important to highlight that Israel and the United States remain outstanding objectors to those additional protocols. They insist that they will not fight wars with one hand tied behind their back against the belligerent that won't, you know, adhere to them, right? It's why the U.S. and Israel insist that all guerrilla combat is terroristic um, and none of them rise to the level of, of combatants. So that's That's the second response. The third response to this is the fact that Israel, you know, we can see from its war making that it's not just targeting certain areas where Hamas might have been, you know, stationed or launching attacks. They have literally engaged in field executions 
of civilians. How do you explain that? They have literally used AI-generated technology in order to meet the greatest amount of harm to residential buildings where they know people are in. They have literally fired at safe zones and safe routes. They just earlier this week fired at groupings of Palestinians that collected in order to gather humanitarian aid that was being delivered to them. Israel is also engaged in starvation, in the deprivation of medical needs. You know, it is proposing to the world that it can engage in total combat against the civilian population if it decides that that's necessary for its self-defense. You know, there are limits here. Even if John Kirby tells the world that the U.S. will not impose red lines, guess what? The rest of the international community does, as does, you know, international bodies of law. And so I would really push back. There's enough evidence here and enough reason to push back against this very, very lazy argument on human shielding. What about this point about, you know, it would be not fair to ask Israel to cease from military operations because Hamas is not subject to the same? Well, again, consider there are no exceptions to genocide. If Israel is engaged in, in plausibly engaged in genocidal campaign, There is no, you know, this isn't about amending its campaign. They must cease and desist from an illegitimate form of of war making, right? Not even war making. I think it's, you know, this is just an illegitimate form of the deployment of state violence. And so there are no conditions here. There's no conditions on ending genocide. And to the extent, you know, if we want to get into the politics of it, Hamas wants a ceasefire, Hamas wants to negotiate. Hamas has has actually put out from the beginning that it wanted to release all of the civilian hostages and you know maintain a hold in you know within the framework of the laws of war on its on its security captives so that they can exchange and prisoner exchanges, right? Which is a legitimate form uh, of thinking about combat, but Israel doesn't see Hamas as legitimate, doesn't see it engaging in a, in a prisoner exchange, um, doesn't want to do that, has actually killed its own civilians in order to preempt the possibility of that kind of negotiation per the Hannibal Doctrine. And so it's it's not like if, if Hamas, uh, if, excuse me, if Israel laid down its arms, Hamas is going to take advantage. They're, this is actually what they've sought. They've sought to enter into the negotiations and, and are not intent on continuing hostilities. But, you know, you somebody would hear me and basically be in, um, enraged that I would say anything that framed Hamas as an actual rational political party with a military wing and a nascent sovereign of the Palestinians, as opposed to, you know, an irrational, bloodthirsty, hateful terrorist organization that cannot be reasoned with, which obviously empirically, you know, that argument is dismantled. But there's so much hysterics that have been, you know, drummed up and constructed. And and some of it, you know, I understand that obviously a lot of, of, of the atrocities on October 7th lent to this that I, that part I understand, but not not the hysterics that have been drummed up. That we can't have that conversation. Note that the only way that Israel has retrieved 
any of its hostages has been through diplomatic negotiations. How do you explain that? We have to understand that Israel's goals here is not merely, you know, what they say decimating Hamas, but they have defined decimating Hamas as basically an ethnic cleansing project that removes Palestinians from the Gaza Strip altogether. That a court can adjudicate this point, I don't think it will, right? Courts aren't adjudicating politics. They're going to adjudicate legal points. They're going to try to to separate those two points, but that's why our political work matters. We've already touched on this a little bit, but in your 2019 book, Justice for Some, Law in the Question of Palestine, you discuss some of the left-wing and Marxist critiques of international law. And we've seen a recent instance of that style of, of left critique of international law with Perry Anderson's uh, article, The Standard of Civilization, that appeared in the New Left Review, and in which, like other critics of international law, he traces its emergence to Spanish and then Dutch and British colonialism and argues that international law emerged as a way to justify the murder and enslavement and plunder of indigenous populations. And furthermore, the international law continues to be used by the United States and US allies to superintend the international system to the benefit of the states of the global north and their business elites and and so on. However, you argue that although that may be an accurate description of international law's emergence and, and character over time, that that does not exhaust the matter and that the law or rather interpretations of it can be effectively wielded by subaltern states or non-state actors, and that it's more productive to conceive of international law as one of a number of unequal terrains of struggle that the left can and sometimes should operate on. Could you expand on those points a little bit and perhaps talk about some instances, maybe with reference to the the Palestinian cause, where radical and progressive causes have made good use of international law to win important victories? That was an excellent, excellent summary. Thank you, Alex. Um, <laughs> so I won't rehearse those arguments again. Suffice it to say that the, you know, my argument, you know, acknowledges the imbrication of law and power. And actually, you know, I argue that law is power. But where I might diverge is my recognition that power itself is diffuse and that power itself is dynamic. So that in order to use the law on behalf of emancipatory struggles, it needs to be wielded in the sophisticated service of political movements, right? And so here I think very much like a movement attorney, rather than thinking as, you know, an attorney who wants to use the law on my own in innovative ways and what I can do, movement attorneys are working with masses of people who are organizing themselves and building power and then see the law as a tool that they can use in that specific moment who, because the law will change meaning across time. Even if its actual content doesn't change, its interpretation and application could change meaning uh, across time based on the historical balance of material, historical, military, moral power. And so I advise that we think, you know, have zero loyalty to the law. The law is not your moral compass. That should be our morality. And that we use the law when it can serve us and we use it strategically. So when the winds of of politics and power are blowing in the favor of movement, use the law, you know, think of the law like the sail of the boat, raise the sail in that moment because the winds are blowing in our favor. When it is working against us, draw the sail. That's not going to be helpful. And when possible, create new law in the service of our political struggles, right? 
And I think that that, you know, people might say, but there's no, there's no way that you can actually use it positively. One, I'm about to give you examples of how it has been, but two, it also makes it, that's just, just such an annihilistic, you know, I think like an, or, an organizer, which I was trained as first before I was trained as an attorney and before I was trained as a scholar is, you know, that's just so nihilistic to think that something that's tainted at its core can never support us. Well, we live in a very tainted world. The economic system, our military balance of power, right? We cannot, you know, it leaves us almost no choice that either it's like all out revolt or nothing and asking people to be in all out revolt in revolution while absolutely understandable and justified is not a realistic ask. It actually then disempowers people, right? How do you build up to these outcomes that you want? And so that's why, you know, I think, think you know, use the law strategically. Use the law strategically, kind of as in, you know, in, in guerrilla, since, since we're the not powerful, think of it in the same way as guerrilla combat. You change your adversary's strengths into weaknesses and you transform your weaknesses into strengths. How has that happened historically? Well, Palestinians who have never had a state or a standing army were able to mobilize the law at the height of third world revolt in order to basically create a corrective to Security Council Resolution 242 in 1974 when they introduced resolutions 3237 and 3236. On the one hand, enshrining the juridical status of Palestinians as a people with a commensurate right to self-determination and not merely as a motley crew of refugees that needed humanitarian service but actually needed a political solution. Uh, and, and they did so by recognizing the PLO as the sole and legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. You know, overcoming this colonial erasure um, that Golda Meir repeats when she says it's not as if Palestine was a land with a people and says that it's a, it's a land without a people for a people without a land, right? That's a juridical erasure. She recognized there were a lot of Palestinians, but that they weren't a nation. Right, that had the right to self-determination, and Palestinians overcome that in 74. They also overcome their erasure in, in Resolution 242, which created a quid pro quo equation to return territories occupied in the 1967 war in exchange for permanent peace with Israel, but again, repeat the colonial erasure that doesn't recognize Palestinians as a people, but only as a refugee problem, right? And doesn't promise for them any kind of, of political outcome and also leaves a lot of loopholes that we see Israel continuing to use to its advantage in the present day. So in 74, the PLO also creates a corrective to 242 uh, when it articulates what its self-determination looks like, that it need not be um, a negotiated solution and there need, need not be any recognition of Israel. In fact, this is in 74. The PLO comes to recognize um, Israel in 1988 when it, it, you know, it signals its its willingness to enter into the peace process. But we could get to that now. Also in 77, right in 75, Palestinians also amend the declaration. What is it? The decade, the decade against racism, right? They amend that resolution to basically add the word Zionism. Everywhere the word apartheid, racism, colonialism appear in order to condemn Zionism as a form of racism and racial colon, uh, racist colonialism, um, discrimination in 1975. And in 1977, they go further and work 
with the non-aligned movement and, and, and the third world in order to basically recognize guerrillas as legitimate soldiers or combatants in the legislation of AP 1 and 2. All of those instances are instances where we see, you know, Palestinians creating new law or using the law to its advantage. And so those are some examples. But listen, the present example right now is in other instance where we are using the law to our advantage, right? Where we are basically confronting this understanding of who gets to define what genocide is and what it isn't. The fact that the Rome Statute in 1998, which um, you know is the treaty that establishes the International Criminal Court, the Rome Statute in and of itself, in the words of scholar Kamari Maxine Clark, enshrines white supremacy and European dominance. And it does so very explicitly when we see of the core crimes that it enumerates, colonialism is not a core crime. So colonization is never considered a crime or harmful. We also see a number of stipulations that will inoculate and protect former colonial powers from trial at the ICC, both by limiting the temporal scope of its application investigation, both by limiting the jurisdiction of the court. And so we know that these courts weren't necessarily meant to try the most powerful. Um, and that genocide, before it was proscribed in 1948, had been used as an essential tool of forging Western civilization. So even in the criminalization of genocide and its admonition in 1948, it didn't recognize you know, the genocides of these Western colonial powers. And we saw that vividly, vividly in the greatest clapback by the Namibian president against Germany, when Germany indicates its its will, you know, its desire to intervene on Israel's behalf in the ICJ case, and the Namibian president says, "Sit down. You are unfit to tell us what genocide is and is not, given that the first genocide of the 20th century was, you know, done by Germany on Namibian soil against the Hamamanero people between 1904 and 1908." And you have not yet to acknowledge that. So this is also, you know, illuminating the colonial nature of these instruments. And so I want to remind people that even in this moment, we are all using the law strategically in order to create the political environment, in order to mobilize people across the globe uh, for ceasefire and accountability. And we're using the law and the legal argumentation on behalf of this movement. But for these millions of people, I don't think South Africa would have felt as empowered to bring this case. So even in this moment, we're seeing, you know, I think it's great regardless of outcome because of the potential of what we can do even with a preliminary finding on um, plausibility of genocide and failure to prevent genocide and provision on those provisional measures, regardless of what will happen in years to come. Is there perhaps a danger that even where the legal path can be effective and appropriate, that it can have the consequence of 
canalizing a movement and, and particularly leadership elements into increasingly over time viewing success in terms of acquiring the approval of courts, prestigious multilateral institutions and, and even Western states to the detriment of, of mass political mobilization or, or armed struggle in contexts where that's an appropriate tactic. And, and one could perhaps argue that this happened to Palestine Liberation Organization through the Oslo Accords and the peace process and that over time approval from um, international institutions in the United States increasingly substituted for concrete steps towards Palestinian liberation. If I understand your question correct, Alex, are you saying that the mobilization of law in this moment poses a risk to the broader political movement? I suppose not necessarily in this particular case, but whether that's always, you know, a danger that one needs to be sort of cognizant of. Because I, I, I was thinking, even in terms of watching the court proceedings at the ICJ, that, you know, I found it extremely, you know, I cried watching it. I found it incredibly moving. And there was something very profound about where it was occurring, the solemnity of the situation and, and, and so on. But I also find myself thinking, oh, does that also, to some extent for me, reflect a certain sort of deference to seats of authority? There's the historical and there's the uh, present. Quickly on the present, I think you're right, and it's one of the reasons that I have, you know, tried to the extent that I've had platforms to say it here or elsewhere, to insist that we not now cede all of the power that only mass movement has generated and cede it to experts to now hash out, right, to decide whether or not there's genocide. The court can decide what it wants, but the court is making narrow legal decisions based on jurisprudence that's also limited. They will, as a matter of law, decide whether it is or is not genocide. But the law is not the final word of what genocide is, again, given the history of genocide that precedes and follows its prescription in 48. So here, again, do not cede your power to, you know, this is not a legal matter to be discussed. There are two conversations happening. We can obviously have this discussion. It might be legal. The court might say, as a matter of law, it is not genocide. But is it a matter of morality? As a matter of historical precedence? As a matter of legitimacy? All these other registers from which we can define genocide, we can still find a finding of genocide as people have. I mean, in Guernica, they sounded sirens, warning of it. Across the world, the chance of we charge genocide is, in, is, is indicative of it, right? And that doesn't go away because of a court ruling. Again, that's why I'm saying we have to be really, really careful. And, and I've been so wary as well. I think, Alex, you and I are, are, are watching the same thing of basically how this conversation is shifting now into the purview Right. Everything that's happening has, has suddenly shifted into the purview of legal experts. And I think that that is a danger and we should resist that. That's not where this conversation should be concentrated or had, even if it is an interesting and a, a significant, not just interesting, excuse me, a significant, significant conversation and an opportunity for us, frankly, for the South African team to insist that the ICJ jurisprudence become more expansive in order to overcome certain hurdles that would lead it to a particular legal finding. Now, historically, there is a great argument to be made that the Palestinian movement itself became much weaker and even neutered, so to speak, when it shifted into, the, you know, into these broader conversations uh, within state institutions and power. And I think that that's absolutely true. 
where I would caution here is that that shift isn't the fault of international law, that there were political dynamics that made that shift possible. And the political dynamics was the weakening of the PLO in the aftermath of their removal from uh, Lebanon as a base for their cross-border attacks, where they maintained a significant, what some might describe as a parastatal institutions, right? And then are removed to Tunis, excuse me, um, Tunisia, I'm thinking in Arabic, Tunis, are removed to Tunisia. And also where we see a a number of factors that, that lessen the relevance of the PLO, from lack of remittances in the aftermath of support for Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, where we see the rise of opposition parties like Hamas in the course of the Intifada, where we see the, the, the focal point of resistance shift from diaspora to Palestine itself, that led you know, a calculus on behalf of the PLO to essentially save itself by entering into the Oslo trap which is a trap, a sovereignty framework of derivative sovereignty, which conditioned incremental privileges to the Palestinians based on whether or not they were good enough natives, as evaluated by their you know, colonizer and its, and its imperial patron. Now, in that trap, right, the way that Palestinian civil society has found its way out of it, because they haven't been able to challenge that trap politically by either, you know, supplanting the PLO or removing the ruling class in the PA, has been to use international law as a scaffolding instrument in order to rebuild a political movement. And we've seen that, you know, very clearly in the shift to a rights-based framework that got us out of a status-based approach. We see that furthered in the BDS call, which is built on a tripartite call um, articulated in the language of law and human rights norms. But we've also seen that it doesn't, you know, it didn't stay there. But that was all scaffolding that leads us up to 2021 in a full frontal confrontation with Zionism as captured in the 2021 Manifesto of Dignity and Hope. So I, you know, I, I understand the argument, I just think it's misplaced if we believe that the law is the cause of it and therefore we need to avoid law for that reason instead of understanding that the cause of it is actually much broader and more political and the law manifests as you know a, a place that we can project our grievances onto. Um, and in this moment, learning from that lesson, again, is what I said at the top. Do not cede power to these courts or to legal experts. And here I speak as a legal expert. It's not up to me. And in fact, I'm, you know, I, I speak as a movement lawyer and saying we'll make use of the law, whatever you know, the mass mobilization wants to make use of it. It should be disruptive. It should be agitative. It should help you know build more power. Um, it should isolate. Um, the adversary, and so on and so forth. So it's an end. It's an end. Also, my response to that is often end. Also, and I, I suppose on the the political context of the Oslo process, you know, as you've already mentioned, that's all taking place in the context of the decline of various third world liberation struggles, and it's it's more or less the same moment at which the ANC moves away from its sort of more radical agenda in in South Africa and effectively allows the white business class to maintain its privileges and so on. 
Right now, I've been working on a project with John Reynolds. Now the project is shifting. Originally, it was just thinking about um, apartheid and, and ways to overcome it. And one of the, you know, one of the problematics that we've seen, even in the finding amongst legacy human rights organizations that Israel oversees an apartheid regime is a way that they do not deal with Zionism as a racist ideology. You know, in their estimation, dismantling apartheid would look like juridical reform of government as opposed to really how do we decolonize and take on this ideology predicated on the twin pillars of genocidal expansion and territorial consolidation. And so in that project, uh, we use South Africa not as a model for liberation, which was juridical reform, but as a lesson of what not to do for our future, precisely because of this critique you mentioned. And frankly, it's not just your, it's the critique of South African scholars who have told us that South Africa basically represents in its anti-apartheid struggle, a site of unfinished business. They have not decolonized. They have not redistributed wealth. There have been no reparations where they were necessary. There has not been a reordering you know, society and government. There has not been a recreation of educational curricula even, right? And instead, all we see is that we see a particular Black um, elite class take the reins of power. That's not an outcome that we want to see in Palestine either. And obviously right now, I'm very grateful to the South African government. It's obviously doing something great. But I'm also mindful of the critique from South Africans who are saying that South Africa is only pursuing this case in order to deflect from its own domestic problems. We can be complicated. It is okay to be complicated. It is okay to be nuanced, to expect that critique or advocacy is only going to come from perfect advocates or that claims to liberation will only come from perfect victims is to basically propose that we we surrender and die, all of us. And so it is incumbent upon us to be nuanced and to be complicated and to you know hold these things in tension as we move forward. In recent months, you've appeared on a lot of broadcast media in the United States and elsewhere, including in mainstream venues. And I recently read an interview that you did back in 2014 on the occasion of Israel's attack on Gaza in the summer of that year. And in that interview, you remarked that, as for the Palestinian narrative, frankly, we haven't developed a media strategy. What we saw was a smattering of professional, educated, well-spoken Palestinians who just emerged as media go-tos on the basis of their history of advocacy. But we are not formally connected to one another. None of us has had any proper media training. And we do not have a uniform book of sound bites or talking points. We haven't even discussed between ourselves the messages we should be trying to convey. Each of us decides what to say on an individual basis. Do you think that still accurately characterizes the interventions made by Palestinians and supporters of the Palestinian cause in the media? Or, or do you think there's been a, a, a big shift in that regard? Yes and no. For the most part, yes. We still haven't developed inf infrastructure amongst ourselves and unified or discussed or, you know, the lack of infrastructure persists. I mean, literally, we're all doing this on a volunteer basis, in addition to everything else that we're doing at our own risk with the 
um, exception of Hossam Zumlut, who does formally represent Palestine as the ambassador to the United Kingdom, there's not really anything that's connected to a formal instrument. Now, at the same time, what has happened that has made us a lot stronger is that there are talking points that crystallize amongst us. We're all watching one another. We're all echoing one another. We're lifting one another up um, and building on one another's arguments. And, and, and you can almost you can see that. I mean, there's something very beautiful in the work that's being done. I think it was really obvious, especially across. Instagram, where, you know, we get as, as people got canceled by, you know, meta that was taking down posts and blocking people, we started to collaborate. So if somebody got blocked, it stayed up on somebody else's page, right? We were amplifying one another. There's no competition here. And I think that that's something, you know, it would be wonderful to institutionalize it, but it's been informed. It's informally. We are working very much together. There's one media organization that we also, you know, has been instrumental in cultivating the work with journalists. And because that's a big part of it. It's not just what we do. It's also on the other end is cultivating relationships with journalists, of educating them, of making sure you know, pointing out their biases or making sure that they're asking Palestinians onto their programs. That part is institutionalized. I, on my own, often, as I did in 2014 and in this case, do spend a lot of my time just talking to journalists, even if they don't quote me or bring me on. You know, I see that also as part of that is the media work, right? Especially when there's pressure on the other side. You know, so much of the work in this instance has been exposing media bias. They canceled our appearances. They wouldn't post our appearances on, on their pages. You know, and we've seen a lot of work. Mahana Saad in her scholarship has demonstrated that bias. But we also saw more recently another study that demonstrated even the number of how many times Palestinian children and are, are mentioned. They're not even mentioned as children. Often they're mentioned as minors or people who are younger than 18, Right. Or the fact that, you know, when is barbarism or barbaric and savage? When are these descriptors used um, in accordance with which, you know, attacks? So the media remains a critical site of battle, not only by those who are coming to the front line as speakers and representatives, but also by the media workers and, and the scholars who are studying the media and the media workers who are pushing back. We're making sure that you can't have this conversation without Palestinians, although they keep trying. Have you felt a particular change in the way in which you're treated by journalists and interviewers compared with previous years, or, or, or does it seem similar or, or even worse? So there's a major, major shift since 2014, which was the largest scale attack on Gaza since the large scale offensives began in 2008. And there I was brought on primarily as mostly as someone to debate. I was never brought on as an expert. I was always brought on as the other side. So always put on a program where I had to debate somebody, right? And then 2018 and the attack on, you know, um, the Great March of Return, mostly I served as a corrective to media, which I think I continue to serve as. In 2021, I saw the greatest shift. 2021 was unprecedented. It was the first time I had been treated across the media as an expert where they now wanted to know, wait, can you define settler colonization for us? 
Wait, can you tell us why you don't think Palestinians with um, citizenship in Israel are actually equal? Wait, can you tell us how Sheikh Jarrah is emblematic of a larger project of the removal of Palestinians? It was unprecedented. So much so that even as I did sometimes five interviews a day, you know, especially early on, um, since October 7th, I had people asking me, where are you? We don't see you. How come you're not doing any media this time? Right? So I do think it's much, it got worse. There's been regression. But I also see that there's been shifts in, in the past 105 days. Uh, the shifts are very clear. In the beginning, you know, the beginning, nobody really knew what was happening. But then for three solid weeks, the conversation was basically, you know, when we didn't know um, any details and there were stories of 40 beheaded babies and just unverified stories of like the 200 people that were killed and just didn't know. And then, you know, getting on the media was the hardest and the worst because the only reason media brought me on was to basically, in the words of Hala Aliyan, to audition for my humanity as a Palestinian and to basically ask why all Palestinians shouldn't be killed. It was disgusting. It was racist. It remains racist, but it was so explicitly racist. When they would ask me, not all Palestinians believe in Hamas. That is a racist question. What does the opinion of any Palestinians have to do with their civilian status? It doesn't change their civilian status and the fact that they are not legitimate targets. Nobody's ever asked Israelis that. They can support the most fascist representatives of their government. It doesn't make them a legitimate target, and yet nobody asks that, right? And so, you know, sometimes in the pre-interview, I would bring this up when I was really frustrated and then get canceled and never brought on the show, so I stopped doing that and then came on to the show to try to hold it up. But then we saw shifts. I think we started to see shifts as Israel's campaign, right? Um, you know, they, 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 they wanted to ethnically cleanse the north of Gaza to below the Wadi Gaza line. And the shift happened after that, you know, after that massive ethnic cleansing campaign where some media started to ask about the relationship between Israel's military goals and its tactics. It shifted very much to a discussion in law and laws of war. And media started to ask me more about laws of war, proportionality, distinction, tactics, human shielding, so on and so forth. Since we heard Biden describe some of Israel's attacks as indiscriminate, since um, Israel has become more systematic in its targeting of the press corps, since we know that there is tension between the U.S. administration and Israel, you know, as articulated by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who says, you know, Israel can win this tactically but lose strategically, right? I think that once we started to see more questioning on the U.S. side, the discourse has changed. And even those very journalists who grilled me, I have seen now grill their Israeli guests. So I, I, it's shifting. It's shifting even in this moment. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 patrons get access to PTO Extra, bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, 
including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.